Well, Sunday, uh, our passage of Exodus 34 eventually led us to 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. And part of what we see in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 is how the glory of God in Christ works in sanctification or the Christian life, the Christian growth. As we behold Christ in the scriptures, we're progressively changed to be like him. But also in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 is how the glory of God works in that event and experience which precedes, chronologically precedes sanctification and Christian growth. And that's what we call our conversion. That moment when we became a Christian. When it clicked, we could say. When the penny dropped. Uh, when the lights came on and we first saw Jesus as he is. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for a God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, that describes the experience of conversion or what we might call regeneration or the new birth, being born again. By way of follow-up to our passage on Sunday, I thought it would be useful tonight for us to take the classic text in the Bible on the new birth. It's in John 3. If you would, turn there in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Let me read for us the first 15 verses of John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life." 
Our passage falls within a section of John's gospel account where Jesus is having private interactions, private conversations with some very different kind of people. So in John 3, it's of course Nicodemus, the religious leader. In chapter 4, it's a Samaritan woman at the well. And in John chapter 5, Jesus interacts with a man who is blind and paralyzed. Now each of these scenes is meant to be jarring, surprising, especially to the sensibilities of first century Jews. Each of the scenes tells us something about the human condition, the human problem. And of course, each of them tell us something unique to Jesus and unique about the salvation that we need. So what does the conversation with Nicodemus teach us? Well, yes, it teaches us about the new birth, but it teaches us even a great deal more if we follow the details as they unfold slowly in the conversation. It starts with, first, a curious introduction. A curious introduction in verse 1 and 2. We're introduced to this man, Nicodemus, and we're just told a couple of important details. One, that he's a Pharisee. That, of course, means that he is indeed a Jew. He is of the line of Abraham. But he is a Jew's Jew, you could say. He's, he's a Pharisee. That sect of Judaism that was the most strict and most conservative and, and most devout. They were the Navy SEALs of the Jewish religion. And he's also a ruler of the Jews. That's a semi-technical phrase for being a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling community, the, the rulers. They, they were responsible for the oversight of the temple and all things judicial and criminal. He's a leader. And this man, we're told in verse 2, came to Jesus by night. Why night? Well, some have proposed that this is, you know, the cloak of darkness, and though he's curious about Jesus, though he's somewhat positive about Jesus, he wants to play it safe because Jesus was at best controversial among his colleagues. And perhaps that's intended by the writer, yes. But, but at times, John uses the word night as a play on words. So sometimes it was literally nighttime, but it was also a dark moment. It's night. He paints the picture for us. And if that's the case here, then he's saying that Nicodemus comes with spiritual darkness. He doesn't see. And of course, as the conversation unfolds, his spiritual blindness is increasingly obvious. Even though at first, there are some mixed signals. There are mixed signals at first about where Nicodemus stands and what he gets about this Jesus. So he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's pretty good. From one angle, Nicodemus is religious, devout, respected, and even open-minded. From another angle, though, 
This is very far from true belief in Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus' miracles are signs that God is with him. That's better than crediting them to the devil like some of his colleagues did. But saying God is with him is like saying God was with Isaiah and God was with Jeremiah and God was with any of these other prophets of old. He says he is a teacher. A teacher. Not the teacher. Not the Messiah. Not the Son of God. Now his first words to Jesus actually demonstrate just a hint of smugness. They certainly place himself and his colleagues in the driver's seat of evaluating things. We know that you're a teacher from God. For we've reasoned that no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. So we have determined God must be with you. And I'm here this evening... This isn't said, but I'm assuming this is the intention. I'm here this evening to see if there's anything more to it. I'll remain in the driver's seat, though. He's polite, but he thinks he's there to evaluate Jesus. It's a curious introduction. Then Jesus responds with this direct statement. Secondly, there's the necessity of the new birth. A direct statement about the necessity of the new birth in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Recall Nicodemus' assertion. We know something about you and about how this works with signs and God's blessing and all that. Well, now that assertion is met with a far greater certainty And authority, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, which he'll say a total of three times in our passage. Here, followed by that emphatic statement, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus would have assumed that he is a shoe-in for the end-time kingdom of God. For God's righteousness and rule reigning on this world in a final day. He would have assumed he's a shoo-in. He's not only a Jew, he's a Jew to the nth degree. He's a Pharisee. He's a leader. He's a leader of leaders. And here is this young, itinerant teacher on the scene named Jesus suggesting that a new birth Another birth is is absolutely necessary for everyone and anyone who will ever even see the kingdom of God. So whatever the new birth is, whatever it means to be born again, it's clearly something radical and massive. It clearly means that no one gets into the kingdom based on their first birth or their lineage. And no one gets into the kingdom because they're relatively good or pretty committed. A total whole new life is what's needed. As John put it back in chapter 1, 
the true children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's the necessity of the new birth. Which leads then to a dialogue regarding the meaning of the new birth. Thirdly, the meaning of the new birth. The meaning is far from clear to Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? He doesn't get it at all. In fact, he employs some crass sarcasm. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Had I been there, I would have said, Oh, gross. Nicodemus, cut it out. Jesus graciously explains. Verses 5 through 8, we'll read them again. Truly, truly, I say to you, there's the second one, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now, there is a lot going on in those few verses I just read. And if we took each phrase one at a time, or even a word at a time, It'll really only increase the effort and time it would take to get to some understanding. And it would probably lead us down a wrong path interpretively. Ezekiel 36 and 37 is the interpretive key. Ezekiel 36 and 37, turn there in your Bibles if you would. It's an interpretive key which unlocks Jesus' explanation to Nicodemus about what he's talking about in this born-again business. So as you're turning to Ezekiel 36 and 37, keep in mind that Jesus talked about water, spirit, and wind in his explanation to Nicodemus about the new birth. So look at Exodus, sorry, Ezekiel 36. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's the first of these elements. I will sprinkle clean water on you, God says, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. Well, not many verses later, in Ezekiel 37, we get the vision of the valley of dry bones, an army defeated, destroyed, and a long, long time ago. They're not wounded in the battlefield. They're not just dead in the battlefield. They are bones in the battlefield, and they are dry bones, old, dry bones. So look at Ezekiel 37, verse 5. What's God going to do to this valley of dry bones? Well, he's going to have his prophet preach to them. And behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. You can skip to verse 9. He says to Ezekiel, 
Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds. By the way, in Hebrew, there's one word for spirit, breath, and wind. Ruhah. And and here it is, used all over the place. It's only context that tells us which way to translate it. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. Water for cleansing, spirit placed within, and wind blowing upon with breath that they may live. Nicodemus was an Old Testament Bible teacher. He's called the teacher here by Jesus. I don't know if that's a special designation, like he was the top of the charts, but he he was a significant teacher. And so alarm bells should have been going off when Jesus talked about water, spirit, and wind. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, I'm talking about Ezekiel 36 and 37 here. What was promised then is coming to be now. Ezekiel 36 and 37, water, spirit, and breath, is what's needed for anyone to enter into the kingdom of God. This is what you need, Nicodemus. You need washing. You need a new heart. You need a resurrection. You need God's spirit within you. You're dead. He thought he was pretty good, even really good. He thought he was the spiritual authority. And Jesus makes it clear he's not talking about a second physical birth like the teacher thought Jesus meant, but a second birth which is spiritual. And yet Jesus wasn't unaware of the theological point that he had just made. When he, when he says in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus is not incredulous that Nicodemus has trouble with unbelief. Because Jesus has just unpacked a whole theology of unbelief. And what's needed to conquer unbelief. He's just talked about the necessity of the new birth and the sovereignty of God in accomplishing the new birth. It's like the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. The spirit blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus is this helpless. All of us by nature, are this helpless. Being born again is not a decision we make. It's something that precedes the decision. The true children of God were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth or being born again is not a box we check on a survey of religious experiences or religious positions. It's what we sang just a a few minutes ago. Wesley taught us, Long my imprisoned spirit 
lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be? The new birth is absolutely necessary for us to enter into God's kingdom. We are completely dependent on God for him to accomplish the new birth. And when he, and when he does, it has its effects. Like the wind shakes the trees. When the spirit comes, there are effects. We may not know exactly when our new birth happened. That's okay. We just know it did. And we're changed forever because of it. And lastly, we come to Jesus elaborating on the source of the new birth in verses 11 to 15. Truly, truly, I say to you, there it is now for the third time. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. Remember how Nicodemus kicked things off with Jesus by saying, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Well, Jesus turns the tables again. Jesus points out the problem with Nicodemus's religiously pompous approach. Nicodemus thought that he and his colleagues were in the interpretive, evaluative driver's seat here. But Jesus just flat out overturns that in the end. Let me tell you who knows what. We know. We speak of what we know. Did you hear that? Nicodemus said, we know some things. And eventually Jesus says, we know. We know. And who's the we? Well, something it's Jesus and his disciples. Yeah, probably not. They didn't know that much at this point. They didn't speak for him yet. I think we know refers to the heavenly council, to the Trinity. We know. We've seen some things. We speak what we know and see, but you don't receive our testimony. And here's the true testimony that Nicodemus has not yet received. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Remember, Nicodemus said, we believe you have come from God. Well, Jesus now says, that's exactly right, but uniquely so. Not in the way that a prophet of old was come from God or with God. He says, no one ascends into heaven apart from the Son of Man first descending from heaven. He calls himself the Son of Man. Likely Daniel 7's Son of Man. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. 
Daniel saw the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days to receive that commission and that authority. Jesus says he's the Son of Man. The Son of Man has descended from heaven that we might ascend to heaven. But no one gets to heaven unless first the Son of Man descends from heaven. So who or what is the source of the new birth? We could say generally it's God, of course. We could say a little more specifically, it's the Spirit. That's in our passage. The Spirit blows where it wishes, and, and we see its effects, his effects. But, but even more foundationally, we could say Jesus is the source of the new birth because no one ascends to heaven unless he first descends from heaven. And it is his Spirit that blows on and brings new life. Jesus is the source of this new birth. And even more specifically, it's in him being, as he puts it, lifted up. Verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But when did Moses lift up a serpent? In the wilderness? Well, it's Numbers 21. Would you turn there? Let's chase this down. Numbers 21. It'll take less time for me to read the passage than it will for me to paraphrase it or summarize it. I tried. Believe me. Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, tell us the story that Jesus is referring to in John 3. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So here's a passage, judgment's deserved, right? Repentance is had and mercy is requested and mercy is supplied by God. And in that passage, faith is expressed by, by merely looking at the object that God instituted for this moment of salvation. In this case, it's a serpent, a bronze serpent. It's, it's an analogy, Jesus says. It's an analogy for the true and final salvation that comes through him. Of course, he's not a serpent. He's the son of man. But he will be lifted up as the serpent was lifted up. So the son of man must be lifted up. Lifted up. On a cross. This is not an expression of his exaltation or his ascension. 
He will refer later on to the crucifixion as him being lifted up. Chapter 8, verse 28, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he. Chapter 12, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up upon the cross that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. And it would seem at that point that the conversation between Moses, sorry, between Nicodemus and Jesus ends. I believe it ends at verse 15, even if your red letters carry on past that. In my opinion is verse 16 is John elaborating on this little story and scene that he records for us in verses 1 to 15. But regardless of where Jesus stops talking, any way you slice it, the passage doesn't tell us anything about, G- about Nicodemus's response to any of this. Not his final response. Did he eventually get it that night? Did he get it? Did he get it later on? Did he eventually get it at all? Did the Spirit ever blow his way? What about Nicodemus? Well, he's mentioned twice more in John's gospel. So now go back to John and fast forward to chapter 7. Here we get just a, a brief mention of him. As his religious leader colleagues are trying to figure out what to do with this Jesus, we find out that Nicodemus is, uh, well, sensitive and sympathetic to Jesus without yet showing any cards to his colleagues. John 7, verse 50 Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, so not any other Nicodemus, the one we have already heard about. He was the one who said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And then his colleague said, Are you from, are you from where he's from? And then fast forward to John 19, here at the end, at the cross. Once Jesus has breathed his last, verse 38 of John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and prepared it for burial. He was there. I don't think it's too much to read into the text. He looked up. Nicodemus is the one that told us, or told John, this story of a little conversation between two men at night, one night. However long ago, we don't know. However long it took, we can't be sure. When did the spirit blow his way and the tree of his life begin to rattle? We don't know. But at the end, he was there. He looked up. 
He risked everything for a proper burial. I think we have every indication to believe he was a man in the end who was born again. Have you been born again? I don't want to assume anyone in this room has been when they haven't. Have you been born again? Have you felt the wind of the Spirit blow into your life? Have you seen Jesus? Have you, have you looked up to the one who was lifted up? If you have come to a point in your life when you have recognized yourself to be in trouble, under a sentence of death because of your sin, just like those folks in Numbers 21, if you've come to a point in your life when you have realized you can look nowhere else but up to Christ upon the cross for your salvation, and you've come to believe that he died in your place, well, then you have no reason to doubt whether you have been born again. No one believes without the new birth. Praise God for the new birth. And for those who have the new birth, we must always keep in mind there are many implications for this new birth. It means new life, new life to walk in, new ways to think about things. It means the spirit within. It means that heaven is sure. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven apart from the new birth. Everyone with the new birth will enter that final kingdom of heaven with Christ. Until then, we keep looking to Christ. We said on Sunday, we behold him in the scriptures. Well, here our passage is, like Moses had a staff of the serpent as the symbol of salvation, and the people must look up to it to be saved. So we look up to the cross. We look to the cross. We look up to Christ again and again and again because we've been born again. What else can we do?